All right, Cross family, uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Rick. I'm the pastor of student ministries here at the Cross Loganville, and I'm very excited to be talking about what I will be today. Uh, I was born and raised in church. Uh, my dad has always been seriously passionate about evangelism. When I was about seven or eight years old, he would teach a class at the church, and they would take teams out to Lake Worth Beach to go witness. And uh, I would always ask as a kid, you know, can I come with you guys? And the answer is always no, because they didn't want me, like, you know, wandering into the ocean while they were doing something important or something. And, uh, but finally, one night, I don't remember why this is, but he finally just said, yeah, you can come along. And it was one of the most memorable nights of my life. I mean, like, I was pumped. I bolt over to uh, my room, and I remember the dresser being way taller than me. And because this was a really important mission, you know, I wanted to, like, get all ready for it. Pick my favorite shirt as a kid. It was this little red shirt with a pocket and this little blue circle that I would kind of pretend was a badge, you know, so I feel like, you know, bigger and more grown up. And, uh, but anyways, as I'm getting dressed for this very important event, I remember rehearsing the story of Noah and the ark, okay, because that might be needed, all right, and I was there for it. So that being said, if you grew up like me, right, as thoroughly churched as I have been, you might understand how a day like today is really hard to beat, okay, because I'm going to be talking about David and Goliath. This is like one of the greatest stories in or outside of the Bible, and so I'm very fortunate to be able to speak on this. So we've got a ton to cover today. It's going to be four books of the Bible, uh, First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. Uh, that's a lot, and so it's going to be four books um, I'm going to spend most of the time in the lives of the first three kings of Israel, uh, which is uh, Saul, David, and Solomon. And then uh, the unity, though, the overarching theme of this that's going to inform our lives for right now is understanding Jesus as the greater king, right? Jesus as being worthy of all of our devotion. Um, the takeaways I'm going to be looking for here are lessons on how we can keep him the king of our hearts, right? How we can seek the kingdom of God first as we learn from some of the mistakes from the first few kings of Israel, okay? And so we'll start with the first one. Uh, Saul is the first king to be anointed by Samuel, okay? Samuel is a priest. Uh, God tells Samuel, um, you know, you're going to go to this guy Saul, anoint him to be king. The story is that Israel has wanted a king for a long time, specifically because they want to be like other countries. They want to be led into battle by a king. God knows this is not the best thing for them. He continually says, you don't want to have to pay taxes to the king. You don't want to have your sons in a standing army all the time. But they insisted. They wanted to be like other countries. And so finally, God uh, gives in and says, all right, we're going to do this, all right? And so Saul is the first one to be anointed, and uh, he does a decent job for the first few years. I mean, he's relatively faithful, obedient, but he runs into a situation, and this is when things get difficult, when it's high pressure, people are looking at him to make a decision, and he makes the mistake of taking something into his own hands that he was not supposed to. He's not the only guy at all in Scripture to do this. Um, plenty of mistakes are made when one is hurried, one is afraid, and kind of skips some steps, right? And this is what Saul does. Um, they were supposed to go into battle. There were some sacrifices that needed to be offered, and it was Samuel's job to do it. But Saul, in a hurry, takes this thing into his own hands to do. When Samuel finds out about this, he says, you've done foolishly, you've disobeyed the commands of God, you're going to be removed as king, and you're going to be replaced with someone who 
seeks the heart of God, all right? And so in the beginning of Saul's downward spiral, it was a matter of ignoring God, right? Maybe not even it crossing his mind that God should be consulted when he's running into a problem like this. But so at first, Saul ignores God. As time goes on, we'll be talking about this in a little bit, when David... uh, is anointed king. Uh, Saul spends plenty of time trying to kill his replacement, actively opposing God, all right? So it goes from ignoring to opposing. And then finally, the night before uh, Saul's death, he's gone all the way to the other side consulting a witch for inside information, right? And so this is often the pattern of sin, right? Make it kind of looking like a reasonable option in context, it getting worse, having to do more things to make up for the original mistake, and finally ending up in a place that is just... Uh, so bad that one says, how in the world did we get here, right? This is a brief overview of the story of of Saul, okay? And so, like I said, uh, in about the middle of his life, David comes on the scene, all right? Saul is uh, the king. His army of Israel is at a standstill with the Philistines, which is their enemy for plenty of time. And we know the story. Uh, Goliath is over there. The champion of the other side is mocking the God of Israel, mocking the country of Israel, And David, who has been anointed king and sent by his father to go check on his brothers and bring him some food, overhears this, and it does not occur to him that this is going to be something that can continue, right? He's going to either demand someone else do it or he's going to do it himself. David uh, takes the initiative, goes to Saul the king, and wants to be the one uh, to fight this giant, right? So let's set this up here for a second. Um, Kara and I have been in Loganville for, I think, exactly 18 months now. It's been a year and a half. We love it. Um, I love being an hour from Atlanta, 45 minutes from Athens, where they have the greatest donuts in the world. Zombie donuts is fantastic. You should have them, all right? Um, Lots of stuff to do, but I love that we live in a small town, and I get to pass grass on the way here and cows. It's awesome. And uh, (laughs) Ricky tells me he wants a cow, all right, my two-year-old. We'll see how that goes. Uh, But anyways, we love this place. We love the cross. Um, But every now and then, I will kind of get homesick for Florida because I was there for 32 years. And specifically, what about Florida I'll miss is the weirdness. Like, Florida is kind of weird, all right? Um, If you are paying attention to the news and you get an odd news alert, 50% chance it came from Florida, all right? Um, just a few weeks ago, I saw a story about a couple getting arrested in Florida for selling tickets to heaven, all right? Uh, <laughs> so not only does it not work that way, all right, theologically, uh, apparently you can get arrested, so word to the wise. Um, anyway, things like this are always happening, right? And if it's not people's stuff, it's at least as frequently weird people and animal stuff, okay? So once every three months in Florida... Uh, someone gets really drunk at 3 a.m., plays in a lake, an alligator attaches themselves to the pine of the person, and if they're lucky, they make it out of the lake, and this happens all the time, right? And so every three months, you know, we hear about this in Florida, and, uh, but I don't hear about things like that in Georgia because it appears there's just too much common sense here, right? That just doesn't, that doesn't happen as much. But um, a few weeks ago, I felt made so much more at home, and I'm very thankful for that. Uh, I think just a few hours from here in rural Georgia, uh, Grandma Dee Dee Phillips, that is actually her name, comes out of her house, notices that there's a bobcat under her car, her truck, and this 40-pound rabid bobcat jumps on her. And Grandma Dee Dee 
strangles the bobcat to death with her bare hands. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so in Florida, one time, a guy was fishing on the beach, shark bites his nephew, the man pulls the shark out of the ocean onto the dry land. That's pretty awesome, okay? Florida man is cool. But Georgia grandma literally takes care of predators with her bare hands. I mean, this is, this is awesome, okay? So if this was me, if I was Grandma Didi, uh, you think you know me now. You would know me for killing a bobcat after that. Like, it would be the first and last thing you hear in a sentence. My tombstone would be, Rick Bloomquist, servant of Jesus, husband of Kara, father of Ricky and Nora, also killed a bobcat with his bare hands, all right? That's, it would always be like that. And so people, are, people tend to boast when they do something awesome like that, right? There's two other situations where people are like, usually you will hear them brag to some degree or frame things really positively, whatever. One would be as if they're, someone, if they're around someone they're trying to impress, like the king of Israel, for instance, a head of state, someone really impressive, there's going to be a little bit of an air of boasting, okay? And this is where David was. He's talking to the king. And in addition to that, it doesn't matter who you are. If it's a job interview, you don't have weaknesses, right? They'll ask you what your weaknesses are, and you'll say, my friends are always telling me I'm too nice, you know, and my bosses are always telling me I'm working too hard and this type of thing. And yet, uh, when David is talking to Saul, about trying to secure the job of fighting this giant that nobody else wants to. Uh, it says in 1 Samuel 17, 37, it's in your notes. This is how David describes his life to Saul. He says, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. All right? Now, I'm going to make this clear. Jesus is the hero of the Bible. No one comes close, okay? But besides Jesus, I think it's pretty... Uh, it's okay to argue that David is maybe the most famous hero of the Bible. I mean, you don't have to know much about the Bible to say, David and Goliath, that's a hero. One of the greatest heroes of the Bible is describing himself as if he is the rescued in this situation and as if God is the hero. This is how David operates, all right? He sees himself as the rescued and God as the hero. And I think that this is a pretty decent picture of what the people of God are meant to be in our world, okay? So, for example, uh, I love being a dad, and just transparently, I want to be my kid's hero. I mean, I just do. Uh, and I want Kara to really respect uh, what I think and what I wish and how I process things. I want to be her hero too, all right? But when you love people enough, um, I remember when Ricky was born, and I realized I want to be this kid's hero, but I need God to be his hero more than I need to be, right? And the way that could happen is by me being seen as someone as totally trustworthy to him, right? Who, who is sincere, who is honest, who does listen to people and really try to understand situations and what's going on, but also unquestionably be loving, right? So, like, there's going to be situations without question, particularly when he's a teenager, right? When we're simply going to look at things differently. Like, that, there's no way we escape this. It happens for everybody, but, and, but I want him to be able to trust and look up to me because I'm willing to hear where he's coming from. I'm willing to find out what's really going on as best he understands it. But even if I'm missing something, he know that my dad seeks my good, right? And he seeks other people's good. And I think we're, we're supposed to be that for culture, right? Where we are going, absolutely going to come in conflict with truth claims and values and all kinds of other stuff. And the, it wouldn't matter if it's this country or any other the kingdom of God's values conflict with the cultures around us. 
And so people are going to think we're wrong sometimes for sure, but the one thing that I think it's really important uh, for us, to, for the culture to know about the church is we are seeking the good of people. That is absolutely what we're trying to do. That's the definition of love. And so this sets us up to actually be able to confront some pretty complicated problems in our world and to be seen as a group of people that can be trusted even if we don't agree all the time. And so uh, David seeing God as his hero I think is, is really uh, important here. Uh, Saul is okay with the fact that David kills the giant for a little while until he starts hearing other people chanting, uh, Saul has killed his thousands, David has killed his ten thousands, right? And so after uh, Saul's already been rejected from being king, he knows he's going to be replaced, and then some upstart comes along and people are praising him, that's when Saul begins to really see David as a problem. And they spend years where Saul is uh, pursuing David and trying to kill him. And uh, you can see the contrast of where their heart is in this whole situation. Uh, with Saul, the throne of Israel appears to be, uh, his, his position, his power, this is where it appears that he is receiving his sense of identity uh, and destiny and purpose. But David, who keep in mind, is, all, is truly the anointed king as well, He's not in no hurry for this at all. He knows what he is. He knows what he's supposed to be. But he sees God as the source of his destiny, identity, and purpose. And so there are plenty of time where Saul is trying to kill David, and David's army will say to him at different times, this is the time to kill him. I mean, he made a mistake. He messed up. This is the time to get him. There's this one story that's like one of the greatest children's ministry stories of all time where Saul is literally in the cave, in a cave using the bathroom, and David has the chance to just kill him right there. And instead, he takes a piece of his coat, pulls it off, goes outside, and says, I could have done it. I could have taken you out, but I didn't, right? And they make up for some time. They go after each other again. But here you can see that David simply does not see his position, this power, this other thing that's true about him as the true source of his purpose, identity, and destiny. And for that reason, David shows restraint like I've never heard of, right? Normally people think, if someone's trying to kill me, I can take appropriate measures to stop that threat, right? David is so obsessed with the desires of God that he says, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. And then later on, when Saul is killed in battle with his sons with him, uh, David mourns. I mean, he, he mourns over this, the fact that the person that God chose to be the first king has died in battle. And so um, after this happens, Saul has passed away. David becomes the recognized king of Israel, uh, achieves the massive accomplishment of uniting the 12 tribes of Israel. This is uh, a pretty big thing. And so after crisis mode is over, where he's not being hunted anymore, and after he's had this major accomplishment of uniting the 12 tribes, he wants a break, right? And this is where he becomes, uh, he, he gets in serious trouble, all right? Uh, the scripture tells us that in uh, 2 Samuel 11, 1, uh, when this happens is in the spring of the year when kings go out to battle. But instead, David sent Joab, his servants, and all of Israel, but David remained in Jerusalem, okay? And so when everybody's out doing the thing that he's supposed to be with them doing, uh, he's in the palace, and he sees on a rooftop a, a woman that he finds very attractive. She's taking a bath, and it's chilling when you read this because this is the guy ha who had 
I mean, unbelievable restraint against someone who he would have been justified in taking out, right? He has incredible restraint here, holding himself to a standard that no one else is asking him to. But when it comes to this thing that he knows is wrong, I mean, he absolutely knows you can't sleep with someone else's wife, right? He's asking who she is, and the men tell him, uh, her name is Bathsheba. He tells, they tell him who she is. They tell him who her father is and who her husband is. And these things don't change the fact that David is committed to sleeping with this woman. And so she gets pregnant, and uh, he has, like Saul's situation, where it, it begins kind of easy, gets harder, and gets more complicated. This is exactly how it goes for David. And so he develops this plan where he's going to call her husband, Uriah the Hittite, out of battle. He's going to give him a bunch to drink. He's going to give him this great meal, hopefully send him super drunk uh, to go you know, spend the night with his wife so that he'll think that this is his kid. Well, it turns out that Uriah is such a good soldier that he's going to refuse to go spend the night with his wife when his men are out sleeping on the ground. And so this guy sleeps on his doorstep that night and doesn't go in. So David's plan doesn't work, and he has to take really horrible measures now where he tells the leader of the battle, I want Uriah in the front, send him up to attack, and then draw back so that he's killed. And that is what happens. And so um, uh, David is able to take Bathsheba as his wife now, and no one knows that this is, this is not Uriah's kid. And uh, I don't have time for it here, but one of, I think, the most profound stories of the Old Testament is when David is confronted over this, right? Nathan the prophet tells this story, sets a trap for David. David is as exposed as anyone ever has been. And this is the huge, huge difference between David and the other two major kings and the rest of them is that David repents. I mean, this is a horrible crime. Uh, he's, people suffer collateral damage over this. But he repents, he turns back to God, he weeps over this, and David ends up actually dying faithful to God, which is unlike so many of the other kings. And so, when something really horrific happens, uh, I, I don't think that it's just because humans tend to be kind of arrogant that we would say, I would never do anything like that ever, all right? I think that that's part of it. But it also could be that we're just sometimes so disgusted by things that we would say, I can't even think about it. I don't, you know, I could never be part of that. It would be a mistake, I think, not to learn about the mistakes of how someone could have such restraint in one area, so little restraint in another area, and who is called the man after God's own heart, right? I mean, this is, he's not just a hero because of what he did for Israel, uh, he's a hero of worship leaders, right? I, mean, I hear worship leaders talk about how serious David was about worship. How is this sort of thing possible, right? Um, obviously, the first uh, thing is what the scripture specifically lists. Everybody else was doing what they're supposed to do during the season to do it, and he stayed home, all right? And so uh, we live in a culture where more and more our understanding of rights is that I can do whatever I want whenever I want to, and it doesn't matter what it is. If I want it, I can have it. And so what that means is we're uncomfortable with anything, any limits at all. And I get that. Um, but sometimes our biological limits are going to uh, make us submit more than laws will, right? And so, for instance, we are supposed to operate according to seasons. We need to sleep. We need to eat at certain times. Tim has said often 
that we need to be where we're supposed to be, doing what we're supposed to be doing with who we're supposed to be with. This is a massive help in ordering our life, right? We may see freedom as being able to do whatever we want whenever we want to, but just the fact that our mind needs structure, right? Otherwise, there's going to be anxiety, there's going to be a lot of feeling of missing out, there's going to be a lack of satisfaction, um, we simply knew, we do need structure, right? And a lot of times, structure's out there. But even in free time, structure is really helpful, okay? Uh, so approaching these seasons and these rhythms as a disciple of Jesus means that they are valuable, but we're specifically valuing uh, the seasons and cycles during the week of work and rest, not just because we have to do them, right? But because they're where we meet Jesus. In rest and in work, the two broad Cycles of where we spend time with Jesus, how we learn to become like him, how to want what he wants. And so I think that it's, it's going to be helpful to acknowledge that our culture, uh, I don't know that we know how to rest very well, right? And part of this is because, you know, the light bulb exists and we don't actually have to calm down at night and we've got TVs and phones and we're up to all hours of the night. Um, and, and honestly, we're normally pretty scared of silence. I will tell my students this. You are afraid of silence, Right? Go into a room with no noise, with no distractions, and just think about how uncomfortable you start to get, right? Because we face our limits when we realize it's really just us and God, right? Uh, solitude is going to be important. Sabbath rest is going to be important. Um, but a, a Jesus-centered view of work is absolutely going to be important because that's where most of the time goes, okay? Um, this is a point that I think could be kind of misunderstood, and so I, I welcome clarifying questions or emails that push back or anything like that. Uh, and, but the reason that I say that is because what I'm about to say here is literally a values conflict. And these are complicated, okay? And so, so let me start out like this. Our, our God-centered view of work. Um, because, like I said, because we are creatures, because we are not infinite like God, I mean, at least because we're limited, only one thing in our life can be absolutely supreme. Like, there can literally only be one top value. Us, that we're limited. We can only have one. And the thing is that that top value, whatever it is, and it will be different things for different people, that top value of our life is not only going to change the way we think, our processes, our values, and everything else, it's going to organize absolutely the rest of our life, okay? And so I think that people are often tempted to make work uh, the supreme value of their life. It's certainly encouraged in the U.S. where we admire self-reliance and self-starting, and I think that's good. It's, it's worked out for us, okay? So, I mean, it's, it's definitely important to, to be responsible and everything, but there's a difference between valuing something highly and valuing something ultimately, right? And when we see our work as the source of our identity, destiny, and purpose, um, it throws things out of whack. And if it's not just work, but a cause, right, a social cause we're trying to accomplish, even if it's evangelism, if that's the top priority of our life, rather than loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is what Jesus said is the most important thing we can do, the differences in those lives are going to be like night and day, right? And so if your ultimate concern, if my ultimate concern is uh, a gaping problem that has to be solved, you can imagine how that's going to affect our emotions in a way that's different than if we have our, our mindset on God, who lacks absolutely nothing, who can solve problems. Um, and so, for instance, Mother Teresa is no stranger to service. I mean, she did some epic stuff. 
but she would tell her sisters, before we go out in the field and serve people, we're going to have to spend our time in silence and devotions. Because if you go out there without being fully charged by God, we're just going to get annihilated. I mean, the, the lack in this world, the hurt in this world is so serious that we're going to need God-level energy and wisdom and love and desire to get us through every day of really working through things. And so um, I think it's really important uh, to keep in mind that work, absolutely essential. It's a major part of our lives, but it is not the thing that gives us our value. There's this uh, verse in Acts chapter 13 that talks about David. Again, one of the greatest heroes of the Bible, and this is what he says. This is what it says in Acts. It says, now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep, was buried with his ancestors, and his body decayed. And this is to say, look, he was huge for that time. David's not running things right now. He did his time. He was where he was supposed to be uh, for the things God wanted him to do. But God is still the one making things happen, right? And this gives us a certain amount of rest and ability to work with God in the problems he's concerned about rather than making the problem itself our God, all right? So David does die faithful to God. Like I said, this is better than most. Uh, His son Solomon takes over the throne. And uh, David was not allowed to build the temple. He wanted to, but God said, you've killed way too many people. It's going to be your son, man of peace, to do it. Solomon has huge shoes to fill, right? I mean, uh, David, again, greatest hero, you know, in, out of the Bible, united the 12 tribes of Israel, killed Goliath, all this. And what does Solomon even have to do? (laughs) Like, how is he supposed to prove his worth? He might just be hoping not to mess the whole thing up, right? And so... God appears to Solomon in a dream and says, whatever you want, I'll give you. Just ask me for it. Whatever you want, it's yours. And Solomon is wise enough to say, uh, I'm really young. <laughs> I'm kind of inexperienced. I need wisdom. And God is very, very pleased with Solomon for asking for this. And so God tells him, because you've asked for wisdom rather than the death of your enemies or great wealth, I'm going to give you all of it. Right? You are going to have great wisdom you're also going to have great wealth. And so Solomon builds the temple. He leads Israel into this age of unbelievable prosperity. Um, But as things often go like this, when things get really, really comfortable and really, really opulent, he gets really complacent, right? And starts to seek pleasure rather than seeking God. He starts to seek his own little whims and desires instead of focusing on the heart of God, marries 700 wives, 300 concubines, is increasingly influenced by their philosophies, and he strays tremendously, right? And he, he really fails. Uh, now, few things in the scripture worry me more. Like, this, that just kind of messes with my head, right? That this is the man who is described as wiser than anyone who came before him, right? And the wisdom came from God. I mean, like, it was a direct gift from God to him. How does someone with that much wisdom still mess it up doing the things that he's not supposed to do? Like, that, that messes with me, right? What it means is that knowing something in your head is not the same thing as actually being wise, okay? And we're tempted to think that. Um, when I was at Southeastern, this one class was begun by a theology professor by saying the phrase, he says, God is useless to us. And everybody's head in the room did something when that was said. Some people went like that. Some people were like, you know, 
Uh, I knew exactly what he meant. When he says God is useless, what he's saying is God will not be used, right? This is very similar to what Nick talked about last week where the angel of the Lord appears to Joshua, and Joshua, reasonable thing to ask, he says, whose side are you on? And the angel says, I'm on the side of the Lord, you know. (laughs) I don't know about your sides, right? Um, But the idea is that God isn't a tool. He's not going to be used or manipulated. Um, But that being said, the wisdom that he's given through revelation of the scriptures, the wisdom he can give us can be used and abused and misused. The same Bible that was used to call for the abolition of slavery in the United States was also used to try to preserve that system, right? I mean, it can be as cheesy as a late-night televangelist abusing the scripture uh, to get rich, and it can be as bad as... um, keeping people down and, and robbing them, okay? So it's, it's really important to know that wisdom from God is absolutely no replacement for being with God, okay? Um, Tim has talked often in here about how there's a difference between, uh, there's different levels of knowing, all right? And the Greeks had a good idea of this. They had different words for knowing. Uh, the one that we'll use in here often is gnosko, and it's, it refers to a type of knowing that's deeper, right? A full body knowledge, not just like a head knowledge, but an experiential immersion level knowledge. Uh, so I'm Pentecostal, and uh, that means that there were very long prayer meetings when I was a kid, all right? And a lot more exercise than we get in other places sometimes. But um, you should see me jump. Anyway, uh, so what, part of what this means is that really late prayer meeting. So I remember Saturday nights where, I mean, we'd be at a friend's house till midnight, my parents in there praying with other parents, and the kids are just having a wild time in the yard. I mean, huge yard, late at night, we're on the roof looking at the stars, we're playing tag, um, all kinds of stuff. It was, it was awesome. And uh, this one night, my sister's running from somebody and somebody surprises her and she just spills it. I mean, totally eats it, full body, full back, just wham on the ground. So, of course, we absolutely howl in laughter at her because that's what kids do. And, uh, but then we really lost it when she yelled, the dew is wet. And we all kind of, we agreed with her. Yeah, uh, <laughs> That is the definition of dew. <laughs> it... it, it, it if it's not wet, it ceases to be dew, right? Water's wet. We, we know this. So now, if you would have asked her, is dew wet? She would have absolutely said, yes, there's no situation where it's not, okay? Um, but that's a big difference between knowing it in your head, running into a situation where your entire body knows it, right? Well, this is what discipleship to Jesus is. Uh, when we have his commands in mind, we're exposed to them already. We already know what he wants us to do but we learn in the doing, right? This is where we really believe how smart he is, okay? Um, So I didn't use this example earlier, but I think it it fits. Um, You know, Kara and Nora and I have had some complications with with Nora. People have been praying, and we're extremely appreciative. There was a few moments when we first got the news where we realized there's a big difference between knowing scriptures and really, really practicing them in the face of having limits, and so I remember this one uh, day after church, someone was praying with her, and uh, one of our good friends told her, I just wish I could take this from you, okay? <clears throat> and it was, it was really in that moment where, this is going to sound weird, and I, I, I'm not trying to be spooky or anything, I felt like I got, it, not a glimpse visually, but this understanding a little bit of what heaven's going to be like. 
where you have this extreme love for each other when you know your limits, right? And other people absolutely love you. And uh, at that moment, I remember thinking that, like, this is a little glimpse, just a tiny little snippet of what heaven will be like when this intense community takes place. But I also had this feeling, Jesus is really, really smart when he says to love your neighbor as yourself. When he says the most important thing we can do is love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself, like understanding the entire point of our lives on earth as loving God and loving neighbor, I thought there's just really something to that. You know, like th- this, is, this is really an amazing thing. And so we, we learn these things as we walk with them. Um, in, uh, in 2 Kings, uh, basically after Solomon passes away, it gets worse and worse and worse. It's a downward spiral. Um, there's a bunch of kings. The, the kingdom splits into north and south, which doubles the amount of bad kings one can have. All right, and so that's what happens. And uh, but there's this verse that I think uh, it it happens to foreshadow the kind of relationship with God that we're all called into through Jesus. All right, and that's Second Kings, chapter eight, verse nineteen, where it says. This is talking about how the kings keep messing it up. They keep becoming idolatrous. They keep abandoning God, doing all kinds of bad stuff. And it says, yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David, his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to his sons forever. And how this happened is that even though the kingdom would eventually split, people go into exile, um, Jesus is a descendant of David. I mean, the king of the universe came through David's line. And so God keeps his promise to David. But, but like I said, this foreshadows our relationship with, with God through Jesus because this is a fine example of how the relationship that God has with people isn't based on our performance because our performance simply can't get us there. It's not gonna happen, right? He had to take the initiative. Jesus sacrifices himself to make up for our debt so that we can have a relationship with God. And our, our relationship with him is not based on our performance because it couldn't be good enough. And when we understand that, when we understand that our relationship is based on his sacrifice and on his character and his love instead of our performance, there, what it does is it allows us to have the mentality of saying, my relationship with you isn't avoiding destruction. My relationship is to get to know you more, right? And so obedience turns from this thing where I'm trying to, I'm playing not to lose, right? I'm playing not to screw it up into I'm playing to win, right? Obedience now becomes the way that we understand God more, all right? Um, so we've begun this series by saying that the Bible is a, it's a love story that begins with a divorce, right? And then the lover continues to woo his bride and continues to be faithful regardless of our failures. Uh, we've seen that in here. Uh, we're going to see that in the coming weeks, even through Revelation, right? The exile is going to be coming, but God is faithful to them even then. Uh, he's faithful to us now, and we can trust in that. Uh, so I'm going to end with this, this quote uh, from Thomas Merton about the love of God being our foundation here. He says, uh, dare to advance in the love that is redeeming you and to laugh at the preposterous idea of worthiness, right? Your worthiness is nothing. It is because of the God who loves you, right? Uh, Let's pray together.